one. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. James Stabbery. He is adjunct associate professor of pediatrics, adjunct associate professor of internal medicine, and associate professor of philosophy at the University of Utah. His research focuses largely on the philosophy of science and applied ethics, as well as the intersection between those domains. He is also the author of the book Beyond Verses, The Struggle to Understand the Interaction of Nature and Nurture. So, Dr. Tabri, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Good to be with you, Ricardo. Okay, good. So uh, the first thing I would like to know, and since today we're going to focus a lot on the main topics of your book, Beyond Verse Verses, uh, I would like first to ask you, uh, where does the debate between nature and nurture come from, historically speaking, of course? Sure. Yeah, an interest in questions about nature and nurture are uh, are very, very old, millennia old. You can go back to, um, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, um, uh, the Hippocratic Corpus. These people were interested in, um, you know, the source of human traits, whether those traits were virtues that they wanted to see more of or mental illness that they that they hoped to cure and see less of. Um and so understanding the source of those traits figured into those, you know, the, those um, uh, efforts to try to understand where the, where the traits came from and how to intervene to, to, to do something about them. Um, so that's quite old. Um, you can see, you know, there's a reference to nature and nurture in Shakespeare's works. Um, so that's, you know, hundreds of years old. But I think when we think of the modern science of nature and nurture, when we think about Typically now, if somebody says, you know, nature versus nurture, or nature or nurture, or nature and nurture, what they're what they're capturing is some kind of interest in for any given trait, you know, what's genetic and what's environment, or what proportion of the variation for that trait is genetic differences, and what proportion is environmental differences, and that really begins with Francis Galton. Francis Galton was the the younger cousin of Charles Darwin, and and he was really the first one to think about how to systematically assess that question. Um, and he did it in a number of different ways. He, he tried to trace um, sort of pedigrees uh, of prominent British families to examine how uh, traits like uh, leadership and, and high intelligence pass down. Um, he also was the, the, the first scientist to, to look at identical twins because the realization was that they shared genes and so differences between them would be uh, attributable to environment. Um, and and then the last thing to say about Galton is he's also the the father of eugenics and, and I hope we'll have a chance to talk about eugenics a little bit later. Eugenics um, you know was this effort to try to harness a science of human heredity and control it to impact populations. Um, and Galton's original idea was to use the, the science of human heredity to 
have more fit people and less unfit people. Um, and so that comes directly out of ideas about nature and nurture. If you think traits are based in nature, then the way you get more fit people and less unfit people is you try to have more fit people breeding and less unfit, unfit people breeding. And that can lead to really grisly things. And it does lead to really grisly things in the United States and Britain and ultimately in Germany. Um, uh, but I think, you know, when you're thinking about nature versus nurture, it's always a good idea to start with Galton because Galton is the first to really sort of formulate the question the way we think about it now. He's the first to think about scientific methods that could be used to probe it and get an answer. And he's doing that because he's interested in using that information to change the world around us. And, and much of what we talk about now with nature and nurture, the scientists are still interested in those things. Mm -hmm. oh, okay, so since it basically started, at least from a modern sense, with Sir Francis Galton, who, as you said, was, the, was a cousin of Charles Darwin, uh, so uh, um, in a precocious phase, let's say, of it, of the nature-nurture debate, it was perhaps too focused on the nature side of things because people were dealing too much with uh, natural selection and after Mendelian genetics also with genes uh, and, and, perhaps, and perhaps weren't paying too much, too, uh, too much attention to things that came from from the environment and also perhaps since the advent of the eugenics movement that also gave more leverage to that, correct? Yeah, I think you're right. You know, uh, genetics as a discipline emerges around 1900. Um, eugenics really gets up and running around 1900. And so those things go hand in hand for the first couple decades of the 20th century. Um, uh, and you're right. As a result, I think, you know, a focus on uh, genetics and nature really predominated um, uh, thinking at that time about how to um, intervene on uh, uh, the world to bring about more things that we like to see and less things that we don't like to see. Um, and so it's really not until a couple decades later when the science that the eugenicists were relying on was was found to be faulty, but also other more social and environmentally oriented sciences, things like anthropology, sociology, psychology come along um, uh, uh, and pay more attention to understanding the environment more. And I think, you know, the, the environmental sciences came up, uh, the social environmental sciences in particular, came along a little bit later or matured a little bit later. Um, and so that first phase was really predominated by an attention to nature. Mm -hmm. Yes, but even in biology, since we started paying more attention to the developmental side of things, perhaps it was then that people that, that first came to mind the, the idea of perhaps also including or paying more attention to environmental factors because, I mean, we have the genes and the genes serve, uh, serve as a sort of blueprint for a particular organism to develop, but it also needs the inputs from the environment to at least develop uh, as expected or, or not. Well, so let me say uh, um, a couple things. First thing I would say is, you know, keep in mind, 
we've thus far been talking about professional sciences, genetics, anthropology, sociology, um, but other people not in the sciences had been dealing with these questions long before that. You know, um, uh, farmers, livestock breeders, you know, these were folks who were in the, in the business of dealing with domesticated crops and animals um, and trying to get something out of them, whether it's more milk or more meat or more wheat. Um, uh, and, you know, you go back to Darwin, much of his work starts by looking at what the animal breeders and, and the farmers are doing with their crops and then just sort of realizing that something similar is going on in nature. You know, any good farmer knows if you want a good crop, you need both good seeds and good environmental conditions to bring it about. And, and so I think that is, you know, that and the developmental relationship between how that organism grows in response to the environmental conditions that are presented to it. Um, so I think that's a very, very old idea, right, that you, you need both. Um, now, what's the best way to think about that genetic element? Um, I think is a separate question. Um, it is oftentimes, you know, thought of as a blueprint um, or a kind of book of life, right? These are kind of metaphors that you often find in genetics. Um, and they, they're useful heuristics because they help people think about, okay, there's this information there um, uh, uh, that, that, that in some sense, you know, produces proteins, which then, you know, uh, influence the development of this organism. Um, they can also be misleading though, because oftentimes what happens is people then think, oh, you know, the developmental information is in the genes and then the environment just kind of reads it or it just sort of, it, 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 the, the genetic blueprint produces it in any given environment. Um, there is no sense of information that, that, would allow you to say that the only develop the developmental information is in the genes and only in the genes. Um, I think the better way to think of it is, you know, uh, the human genome uh, is a very complex thing and it makes proteins among other things. Um, uh, and it does this in, you know, a, a molecular, a cellular, an organismal, a, a larger environment. Um, uh, and oftentimes it's very, very difficult to kind of pinpoint, you know, okay, that there's the cause um, because this stuff is all kind of happening together. Mm -hmm. Okay, but, but since all that happens in the body has to be mediated by the genes in the sense that, okay, so even if we are exposed to different environmental conditions, perhaps there are different sets of genes that get activated or deactivated, but I mean, uh, it is always the case that all the effects that the environment might have on us, they are all mediate, necessarily mediated by genetics or, or not. Well, yes or no. I mean, let's look at, at, at two extremes. There's some cases where we, when we think of purely genetic traits, genetically deterministic traits, aren't mediated by the environment at all. Take a, a, a trait like Huntington's disease. We know of no cure for Huntington's disease. If you have the allele that generates Huntington's disease, there's nothing that anybody can do at present to stop it, right? Um, that's genetic. Flip side, take something like tsunamis and dying in a tsunami. Your genes aren't mediating that, right? I mean, that is natural disasters, random natural disasters, getting hit by lightning. That's not genetically mediated. That is purely environmental. 
what you were getting at though is for lots of traits, especially complex human traits, something like you know depression, mental illness, heart disease, uh, cancers. Lots of these are impacted by some sort of genetic predisposition and also environmental exposures um, uh, that bring about something. And in that case, the genes mediate the environment and the, envir and the environment mediates the genes. I mean, I think the, the, the key here is when you see that interdependent relationship, you don't, it's easy to naturally fall into the uh, assumption that genes are in the driver's seat and, they're, and the environment is coming along for the ride. And that's not the case. The case is when you've got this interdependent relationship, they are both mediating one another um, and they're both along for the ride with each other. Um, uh, they're really, the, the mediation is bidirectional. Mm -hmm. Okay, but when we're studying, uh, for example, environmental factors, isn't it the case that it is much more difficult for us to really study those types of, th of things because we, we would have to control for a huge lot of confounding factors and, for example, in people's lives we go through accidents and unique events and, I mean, it's very difficult to have control over those types of things and when we're studying genetics, I mean, at least we can have a good grasp of what we have there. That is, we can have the genetic sequence and perhaps through genome-wide association studies, step-by-step step with perhaps tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of participants, we can little by little pinpoint uh, what, uh, what are the genes that are associated with complex traits like psychological ones and others as well or or i mean does this make sense or or not yeah but i want to sort of note that you have um changed the conversation in an important way so in the last few questions we were talking about sort of in the general sense how should we think about and talk about and conceptualize the relationship between genes and the environment and you know all i wanted to say is you know, in some cases, we've just got you know, what we might think of as purely genetic traits, like Huntington's disease. In other cases, we have what you know, might think of as purely environmental traits, like nat you know, natural disaster deaths. And for lots and lots of traits, we got things that are both, right? And, and, and when we're talking about that, things that are both, we want to be clear that the mediation is, is you know, the interdependence affects the, both sides of that equation. What you were getting at, though, in this last question, though, was, okay, now when we shift from thinking about this stuff to actually going out in the world and studying it, um, isn't it the case that it's just easier to do genetics? And the answer is yes. It's easier, it's cheaper, um, it's quicker, right? I mean, and you were starting to get at, at, at part of this. Um, you know, the first human genome cost about $3 billion to sequence. They're sequencing whole genomes now for less than $1,000. So it's much cheaper. The first human genome took about a decade to sequence. They can now do it in days. So you can do it very quickly, right? You've only got one human genome, right? So if we're talking about Ricardo's human genome, you give me a drop of your blood, and in a couple days and $1,000, we can spit out that sequence, right? 
talk about Ricardo's environment, where do you want to begin, right? Do you want to talk about the water you drank today, the food you ate, whether or not you got exercise, the stress you encountered, um, the air you're breathing, the relationships you have with family members and coworkers and people you bump into on the street, um, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the microbiome in your gut, um, uh, you know, uh, how you treat people and in turn how they react to you when you treat them that way. Environment is all of those things. And it's also constantly changing, right? I mean, every one of those things had some sort of impact on you today, which was different than yesterday and is probably going to be different again tomorrow. So when we want to measure Ricardo's environment, my God, right? I mean, we're talking about countless things that are constantly changing. And that makes it very, very difficult to study scientifically because it's hard to control, much harder than genetics, right? Where we could just get your blood and, and spit it out and then we could talk about the differences between your genome and my genome or your genome and somebody else's genome. Um, and in turn, there's been lots of progress in genetics that we haven't necessarily seen in other environmental sciences. Um, but I think, you know, the important thing to keep in mind is you don't want to infer from that, oh, that must mean nature's more important. What it means is, if by nature we mean genetics, it's a whole lot easier and quicker and cheaper to study than this other stuff. And, and then as a result, just, you know, the pressures of doing research direct people to do that because they can get more out of it. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I mean, even when we're talking about genetics and the genes, it is always the case that, at least for complex traits, and here we can include the psychological ones, like the ones regarding personality and things like that, uh, that they are polygenic in nature. That is, there are a, a lot of genes that contribute uh, to a particular kind of trait. So even there, uh, I mean, we don't have, as sometimes people say in the media, a gene for something, a gene for for aggression, for example, or something mm -hmm. like that. So it, it it is even then it's a very complicated picture. But I guess that what I was trying to say is okay. I talk with behavioral genetics, and they tell me that. Uh, psychological traits usually are somewhere between 40 and 50 percent heritable, that is, they, they are 40 to 50 percent genetic, broadly speaking, and the rest is explained by the environment. But again, it's, it's much more difficult to isolate environmental factors, right? Yeah, I mean, here's what I would say about that. So you're right. You look at, I mean, look, this is what Eric Turkheimer calls the first law of behavior genetics. All traits are, are heritable in the sense that for any trait that you look for variation in that trait, you will find genetic differences are contributing some portion of the variation to that, to that overall phenotypic variation. Um, now, there was a time when that was a really radical hypothesis, okay? Much of the 20th century, let's just take schizophrenia for a moment. Much of the 20th century was predominated by a psychiatric viewpoint that 
explain schizophrenia in a purely environmental way. Schizophrenia was caused by poor mothering. Okay, it was basically frigid, distant mothers that didn't love their children, and schizophrenia was the product of that. When behavioral genetics, you know, sort of took shape and came on the scene in the mid-20th century and started pointing out that schizophrenia actually has a quite high heritability, that was a controversial idea because it suggested that you can't just blame all this on moms, right? There's actually something biologically going on. And I think now everybody just sort of would take it at face value that, um, you know, something like schizophrenia is a product of environmental things, some of which we have a grasp on, some of which we don't, and genetic fast, uh, features, some of which we have a bit of a grasp on, many which we don't. Um, that is a sense of progress for nature. Compared to the way we were previously thinking about schizophrenia, it looks like nature's made some progress. On the other hand, let's go to the end of the Human Genome Project. At the end of the Human Genome Project, there was bold predictions about how medicine and psychiatry, you know, medicine generally and psychiatry specifically, were going to be overhauled with this new genomic revolution. Um, um, so Francis Collins led the Human Genome Project, and at one of these celebrations at the end of it in 2003, he said, you know, in the next five years, um, all the major genes for heart disease and cancer and mental illness um, are going to be found. And five years later, we're going to have personalized treatment plans for people with these conditions. And by 2020, we're going to have a gene-based cure for almost anything that you can imagine. Okay, so we're now in 2019. 2020 is a year away. We, there are no major genes for schizophrenia, right? We didn't, in that three-step process that he outlined at the end of the Human Genome Project, we're going to find the genes, and then we're going to tailor medicine, and then we're going to cure illness. We, what, what, basically what we found immediately after the Human Genome Project is, for most complex traits like schizophrenia, there is no gene for schizophrenia. There are tens, hundreds, sometimes even thousands of regions of the human genome that are associated with this trait in ways that we can't fathom. And so the thought that you're going to then get to curing that based on that genetic information, now we realize, is just um, silly, right? Because there's no, in contrast to something like, um, oh, you've got an infection. We'll give you antibiotics and that'll take care of that, right? Because the, 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 the infection is this causal hook that we then intervene on to stop the thing from happening. If, if the genetics of schizophrenia are spread out over tens, hundreds, or thousands of places of the human genome, there's no drug we can give you to intervene on those, you know, complex processes. In that sense, the, the case for nature has taken a very serious hit, right? Because it isn't delivering on the promises that people were making at the end of the Human Genome Project. So I think, you know, to sum it all up, I agree. At the, at the highest level, people agree, you know, something like whether we're talking about schizophrenia or heart disease or, you know, you name it, it's going to be partly biological and partly environmental. That recognition is a development compared to previous times when we thought things were entirely environmental or entirely genetic. Um, but compared to much of the hype you hear 
about how genetics and genomics is going to sort of revolutionize medicine, that has been a catastrophic disappointment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I mean, perhaps the genome project was overhyped in the sense that you put it because, I mean, all the complex traits are polygenic and so, as you said, we, can't re we couldn't really create something to go there and to change all of those tens or hundreds of genes at the same time. Uh, but also uh, adding to that, I think that another complication is the fact that uh, if we're trying to do gene editing to change a particular complex trait, then we also have to take into account the fact that uh, a particular gene produces a, uh, or codes for a protein that intervenes in several different processes. That is, there are lots of genes that have, uh, as, you, as we usually call it, a pleiotropic effect. So if we were to change perhaps tens of genes, we would induce probably other types of problems, correct? Yeah, so now what you're getting at now is it's not just about kind of understanding this complexity, but when you appreciate the complexity and try to think about intervening on it, you run into all sorts of problems, right? You kind of say, ah, we'll intervene in this way, um, uh, 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 you know, to bring about this thing that we want. You, might, you don't know what might come of that, right? I mean, there was, um, you know, a, a case of this, you know, occurred in the last couple months with this scientist in China who said that he had used CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing on um, uh, uh, human embryos. And the claim was he did it in such a way to make the, the developing fetuses less likely to inherit HIV. Um, but we don't know what else intervening on that genome is going to do these, to these babies, if they exist. I mean, there's also a debate about whether or not the guy was just making it up. But let's take him on, at his word and say that he did do this. You know, there was almost universal repudiation of this announcement because there, so little is known about what, how it will actually play out when you go in and start editing the human genome. Um, and, and for just the reasons that you said, because you start tinkering with this thing, things will happen that we don't anticipate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so earlier you referred to some examples of conditions that are perhaps uh, com uh, completely genetic and not, and not really mediated by the environment, like, for example, Huntington's disease. But I, I guess that at least in some extreme cases, we can also talk about situations where perhaps the effects are completely environmental. So, for example, when we talk about IQ and the Flynn effect, if children are extremely deprived or, for example, if they are exposed to infections or toxins that might uh, impair their neurodevelopment, then could in those cases we talk about, uh, about them being the result of environmental factors completely or, or not? Yes and no. I mean, the, the examples you're pointing to are sort of, you know, they're in the same ballpark as what I was talking about earlier with a tsunami. A, a tsunami will take it, will impact your IQ, right? 
because if you die in a tsunami, you will no longer have an IQ. Um, what you're pointing out, though, is there's also sort of developmental exposures that could people get. Um, uh, you know, uh, and, in, and in particular, deprivation, right? If you're sort of, if, if individuals, whether it's humans or rats in a lab, um, are not given access to just basic necessities for typical development, then all sorts of, you know, weird things are going to happen. That said, I mean, even in these cases of deprivation, there's variation among the organisms. And, and if, if that deprivation is all of the same kind, then the variation is genetic in nature. Um, um, uh, you know, so you look at, at cases, um, uh, I'll just, you know, talk about the United States where I'm familiar with. If you've got cases where um, there are, you know, very little educational resources, in homes, in schools, right? I mean, basically, the children who are raised in those environments do, you know, have little in the way that will facilitate them, you know, a achieving their potential. And that's environment, right? I mean, the, the reason they're in that bad situation is environment. But within the population of kids in that in, in that case, there's variation, right? I mean, some do, some manage to find a way. Um, uh, and genetics is going to be part of that story. Mm -hmm. And in that, so what we would say in that case is, whatever the environmental variable is that we're talking about, and the genetics are mediated by one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, and that's a very interesting case that you just referred to as, for example, if people are exposed to uh, extreme environmental conditions, even then there are some people that still thrive in them. So, because we also have, and this is another concept coming from behavioral genetics, gene-environment correlations. And one of them is the active gene-environment correlation. That is, people by themselves also try to seek out for and to create the environments where they would be able to express themselves better, for example. Right. Yeah, I think, so that's one possibility. So, you know, let's take these sort of notable, you know, you think of notable examples of somebody who was born in poverty um, and managed to achieve great things, you know, via go to good schools, um, uh, you know, go on to an impressive job, maybe becomes a prominent politician. Um, one, you know, one gene environment correlation story you might be saying there is, well, you know, they've got some sort of genetic predisposition at the personality level that inclines them to sort of seek out environments that um, overcome somehow this, this deprived in situation that they found themselves in. That's a possibility, right? But I mean, keep in mind, another possibility is that individual just experienced random luck fortuitous opportunities that the other people in the group don't right you know there was a counselor that you know took an interest in that person and was like i'm gonna help you right and the counselor didn't have the resources to be able to give that to everybody so you know she she prioritizes who she's going to focus on and goes for this kid and this kid benefits from it right or um the, the the kid is part of some social group 
and there's a benefactor in that social group that decides to sort of invest in this child, right? That's now not a gene environment correlation story. It's luck, right? I mean, it just so happens that this person was given, even though on, on one level it looks like they came out of the same environment as everybody else, this deprived environment. When you probe a little bit closer, what you realize is, you know, um, their environment isn't all the same. Some people are actually, you know, getting access to resources that others aren't. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just before we move into the second part of the interview regarding the ethics of all of this, uh, what would you say would be the best way to, uh, with the science that we have nowadays, to put the nature-nurture dichotomy debate here? W would you agree, for, for example, with when people use expressions like nature via nurture or nurture, nurture via nature and things like that? Yeah, I, I think any time an effort is made to remind people that complex human traits are the product of nature and nurture, it's a good thing. Because it is so easy to fall into a simplistic view where you think it's one or the other. And historically, this, if you're heading in the simplistic direction, you typically end up in a genetic version. And so you start talking about like the gene for criminality or the gene for leadership or some other kind of goofball idea like that. So anytime you're paying attention to the, 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 you know, the complexity as reflected in this language of, you know, mediation or via, I think that's a good thing. Um, but I think at a higher level, you know, ultimately, the, you know, if the question is about how are we going to distribute our scarce resources to fund science, then we have to be realistic about what are we going to get the biggest payoff, right? And, and in some cases, that might be genetics. And in other cases, it's, it's, much more likely to be the environment, right? So, I mean, in the case of where genetics has made some headway since the Human Genome Project is in the domain of cancer, you know, trying to tailor chemotherapies based on whether or not somebody has a particular genetic marker. Um, cancer, we always knew was genetic. So, thinking that maybe understanding the genetics of cancer a little bit better might help us, you know, personalized treatments uh, in a way makes sense. You flip over though, if you're interested in something like health disparities, why do certain racial groups, you know, um, on average die sooner, have greater levels of infant mortality, um, um, higher levels of all sorts of illnesses, um, uh, both mental and physical, right, than other racial groups? looking for a genetic explanation for that is a very, very bad idea, right? Because there's lots of just obvious environmental things to look for where we can see where, how this is happening, right? And in the United States, you know, it's just, it's very clear. Certain racial groups, right, have access to educational opportunities and wealth and job opportunities and healthcare that other groups do not have at the same rate. And so, Thinking that you're going to find a genetic explanation for why this one group is faring worse than the other is very misguided. Right? Um, so, you know, again, at the conceptual level, nature via nurture, nurture via nature, you know, I'm all for that. At the practical level of funding research, you need to be very clear about what it is you're intending to do and study 
because in some cases focusing on genetics makes sense and in other cases it's it's a bad idea mm -hmm. okay okay so now about the ethical implications of all of this so uh, what would be the most problematic points of trying for example to reduce everything to nature and genes i mean i i'm not saying that uh, scientifically minded people do that but perhaps some people or some political groups could pick up on on a certain research and then say that because we have these innate differences then that would have some sort of ethical political social implications and things like that yeah i mean the danger would be let's focus on the racial health disparities in the united states example or you know um you take it in the united states native americans and african americans die younger than white americans there are higher rates of infant and maternal mortality um, higher rates of um, hypertension mental illness lower educational opportunities lower wealth opportunities higher rates of incarceration right? i mean massive differences in terms of the economic health wealth outcomes between these two groups that is a disparity nobody doubts this this is not up for debate the question is what explains it if you think a genetic explanation is the root of that then you could then you take a certain attitude to that disparity right you might say well look you know it's just the genetic roll of the dice this group fared worse than that group Everybody gets their own genetic roll of the dice, so um, tough luck, right? If, however, we think the cause of that disparity is not because of genes, it's because, right, there's a sort of history where one of these groups has been systematically treated in a way that the other wasn't, you know, um, with slavery, with lynchings, with um, having land taken away from them, with being forced into environments where they have, you know, little in the way of educational and economic resources, then it's very clear, right, if you live in the, you know, a, a nation that prides itself on equal opportunity, that there are conditions on the ground here that need to be addressed so that we can actually legitimately aspire to that equal opportunity. If you think it's in the genetics, then you're getting you're getting you're sort of missing the problem, right? You're sort you're not looking at the actual source of the cause. You're focusing on something else, um, and that's that's a real concern. That's a problem, right? I mean, you you see lots of um, uh, people drawn to um, conservative philosophies um, that appeal to genetic differences as the source of racial disparities in the United States. And that then is the first move in an argument for not wasting federal dollars on trying to address that gap. Because the thought is, not my problem, right? Um, if it's not genetic though, you can't make that so cleanly. You, you've got to wrestle with the fact that it is stuff in the fabric of the nation that is doing that and as a result it's stuff in the fabric of the nation that we all have to chip in and help address mm -hmm. okay but uh, 
even if we were to reduce certain conditions to their innate basis, to their genetic basis in this case, uh, I, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't it be a naturalistic fallacy if someone were to pick up on that and then say that uh, we should deal with those people on, on a certain basis or, or through certain means? Because I, get, uh, because I mean, even uh, the nature side of things, there are some social justice cases where uh, the defense of those groups of people is made on the basis of uh, those conditions being innate, like, for example, in the case of homosexuals, transsexuals, uh, and other people like that. Like That's right. I, I do not want to, I don't want to suggest that if it turns out that certain traits are genetic, <clears throat> then you have to think of these racial disparities as things that aren't our problem. Um, uh, what I was indicating was that is the, the, a constellation typically forms, which is it's genetic and I don't have to think about it. It's not my problem. Um, uh, now, the naturalistic fallacy, it would be a naturalistic fallacy if, if what they said was, you know, this is genetic. Therefore, it's not my, you know, therefore, I shouldn't have to worry about this. But usually the argument doesn't take that. I mean, you know, the, these conservative authors do have fleshed out arguments for why once the problem is genetic in nature and then you're thinking about how to distribute resources that does not get prioritized as something that's worth using resources in that way so i i don't think the problem with it is a naturalistic fallacy i think the problem with it is it just starts from bad science but you're also right i mean i think what you were getting at was um Humans have no more control over their genes than they do over control of their rearing environment. And if we believe in equal opportunity and addressing sources of inequality, if it turns out that genetic inequality is a reality, then then we should be addressing that as well. Um, you know, and so, I mean, people have talked about this. Maybe it is if you find out that people are genetically less well off, genetically less inclined to, um, you know, uh, educational achievement, then maybe re more resources should be devoted to them to overcome that, you know, that sort of um, deficit that they had no control over. People are making that argument. Um, but I think, you know, what I would say is, I'm not even sure we have to worry about the argument yet because it is not obvious that genes are what are driving the, driving these disparities. Um, if it turns out that we get to a point where, you know, whole genome sequencing or, or genome-wide association studies finds very clean, clear genetic markers that account for significant portions of the variation in educational attainment, um, then that would be something that we would have to think about. But we're not there yet. You know, I mean, the, the largest genome-wide association studies that have studied educational attainment find a handful of SNPs that account for, you know, a minuscule amount of the variation. And so to think that, you know, you're going to start making policy decisions based on, on that minuscule amount um, 
uh, uh, would be very misguided. It would be, that, that's the word, it would be diverting attention from these other things that we know contribute to massive inequalities, like lack of access to libraries, lack of access to nutritional diet. Right? I mean, there are things that we know account for much more of the variation. Mm -hmm. Yes, and this, isn't it also the case that extreme environmentalism can also lead to bad outcomes in the sense that, for example, if I were to believe that we are born tabula rasa as blank slates and we can inscribe in people's minds whatever we want, then anything that I don't like, perhaps I... I would think that I, uh, that I would be able to change those people uh, and to tweak perhaps their preferences in a way or another that are more attuned to my own preferences. Like, for example, what people tried to do uh, a couple of decades ago in the case of homosexuals where they had uh, reconversion therapy or something like that, right? Because they, they didn't really believe that it was something innate and it wasn't really their fault for having that type of sexual orientation, but it was simply them being exposed to bad env environments, to a bad culture, and it was simply a case of forcing them to be as those people would prefer, correct? Yeah, I mean, let's sort of take two things, take, tease apart two things. So one is the whole debate about homosexuality and uh, conversion therapy. Um, and then the other is, yeah, the kind of tabula rasa idea where, you know, you kind of assume that we're born a blank slate. Um, with the conversion therapy, that was abhorrent regardless of the nature or nurture of homosexuality. Right? I mean, the reason we got to a place where conversion therapy was being practiced was because People had come to think that homosexuality was a sickness that needed to be eradicated, that if you were a homosexual, there was something wrong with you. Now, I think appreciating the biological side of, of, of uh, sexual orientation was an important step in the process of people becoming more... Um, comfortable with the fact that people were homosexual because it allowed people to say look this isn't me cho choosing this is just how i was born or it allowed you know a parent to say you know uh sam didn't choose this it's how he was born right and 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 by eliminating that element of choice it seemed to eradicate you know that trait as an object of of moral scrutiny right in the same way that we would you know you wouldn't say um, you wouldn't blame somebody for getting cancer. And so the thought would be, well, if, you know, if homosexuality plays by the same rule as cancer, we can't blame for that either. I think, I hope, we're getting to a point now where it doesn't matter whether homosexual, homosexuality is a product of nature or nurture or some combination or choice. Because there's nothing wrong with it. You know, I mean, if that's how you want to live your life, if that's what makes you happy, by all means, you know, go out and flourish. Um, uh, so I think let's set that aside because I think 
it's it, it's that's what was problematic about that case was it was a particular trait that got caught up in a religious ideology in a very unique way. Your point about the tabula rasa, though, I think you know is right, and it's a, I think it's an instance of a more general point. Anytime your vision of how the world works does not align with how the world works, at some point you're going to bump into the world and problems are going to arise, right? Mm -hmm. That applies to whether you're building bridges or, um, you know, making arguments about the causes of crime in the United States or trying to raise your kid, right? I mean, if you kind of, you know, tell yourself, I'm going to raise a professional, you know, soccer player. That might not happen, right? Despite your best efforts, you might not have, you know, a child that has the just, you know, the gifts that are necessary to play a professional sport. Um, if you think that illegal immigrants are the cause of crime in the United States, when all the data suggests that illegal immigrants commit crimes on far, far lower levels than citizens of the United States, you're going to develop all sorts of goofball policies that waste resources trying to address a problem that isn't a problem. Um, so I think that's important to keep in mind. Right? I mean, the, it's, it's, a gen, it's an instance of a more general phenomenon of you think the world works one way and you sort of de you d decide to interact with the world because that's how you think it works. And if it turns out it doesn't work that way, problems will inevitably arise because eventually you will bump into the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, so still on the ethical side of things and perhaps just one last question. And going back to the eugenics movement and perhaps we can also connect it with uh, gene editing and human enhancement because I mean I guess that it's not just the ethical side of things that is problematic even from a strictly biological perspective th does it really make sense for us to think that we would be in a better position if we were to eliminate or, or to try to eliminate uh, all traits from the human race that we were to consider negative because i mean perhaps some of those negative traits that we considered neg negative in those uh, present conditions in the future they could be adaptive or or something like that right yeah i think that's one argument to make um things that we don't think are good now might be good later i think the other argument to make is just it's not clear that anybody is in a position to decide what makes a trait good and one bad, right? I mean, when you go back to the eugenics era of Galton and his associates, you know, the eugenicists were almost universally educated, middle-class white guys. And when you looked at the traits that they valued, it was basically the traits you found in educated middle-class white guys, right? It's all they knew. They thought, be, be nice if there was more of us around. Um, there's things they don't like, things that, you know, people that take their money, um, uh, people that, you know, uh, uh, cause them to be fearful. We don't want that, right? Um, fast forward to the present. I think there's a genuine concern. It's not just that 
a trait now might be useful in the future. It's we are still eradicating things because we think that life shouldn't be around, right? And people who, who, who live with that are rightfully offended by it, right? I mean, so, you know, in the United States with the onset of, of um, uh, legalized abortion, there are far fewer people with Down syndrome uh, than there were in the past. Um, and, you know, you go back 50, 100 years, the idea that you would want to be around with Down syndrome would just seem crazy. It's like nobody would want Down syndrome. Nobody would want a child with Down syndrome. Um, but now that's not a crazy idea at all, right? There are shows that follow populations of thriving people with Down syndrome. There are Down syndrome societies. There are adoption agencies that only put people into contact with having a child with Down syndrome. Um, not because we think Down syndrome will be useful to humans in the future, but just because we think there's nothing wrong with this person, right? They, they, they are different, but different isn't broken or diseased. Um, and so I think that's what's kind of important to keep in mind here. Anytime you're sort of in the business of trying to say good traits, bad traits, I want to see more of this, I want to see less of that. For some things, it's pretty easy. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I don't think there's anybody out there trying to make the case for more cancer, right? I mean, you know, anybody who's experienced or thought about or, or saw a family member or friend, you know, deal with cancer, that's bad. We want to try to see less cancer, right? But ways of living, you know, and mental illness or disability or down, you know, Down syndrome as an example, is a, I think is better thought of as a way of living. To say that we want to see less of that is dangerous. And it and it and it 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 harkens back to eugenic era, where basically it's you know the people who say that have had little exposure to people with Down syndrome. They think, ah, yeah, that, something looks wrong with that person. There must be, you know, I wouldn't want that, or I wouldn't want my child to have that. And you actually start, you know, meeting people, uh, interacting with them. You think, my God, the world would be a better place if there were more people with Down syndrome around. Um, uh, so I think that's worth keeping in mind, you know, the, the effort to kind of change the structure of the human population to say we want more of this and less of this um, uh, is fraught with um, bias, because inevitably what you're doing is sort of saying, I want more of the things that kind of look and sound and talk and pray like me, and I want less of the things that kind of make me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Yes, and just going back again to the question about uh, complex traits being polygenic and also pleiotropic effects, isn't it also the case that perhaps if we were to try to change some of those complex traits, like for example intelligence and IQ, if we knew that by changing uh, 10 different genes we would increase uh, IQ by, I don't know, two or three points. But at the same time, due to those pleiotropic effects, we would get a 40% higher chance of developing some sort of neurodegenerative disease or something like that. Then uh, that's when you get something negative by trying to improve the human condition or something like that, right?
Yeah, I think trying to intervene on human populations in this way is has a variety of problems with it. The one I was hitting at was more just at the level of saying I want more of this and less of this. It's it gets built in. It's made with bias. You're pointing out at the technical level, right? We just don't know enough about how genomic systems work to intervene with specificity and say I only want to see this change and nothing else. Um, for some you know, very basic traits, we can do that. But for the vast majority, we can't. Um, and, and, and so going, trying to do that, you know, is going to, is going to create real problems. Um, and, you know, mentioned back to that China example, the example of the Chinese uh, scientist who said he has done it. Um, if in fact he has done it, we now have a test case to see whether or not, you know, the people the, the, that were subject to it, um, will in fact only be impacted at the level of HIV susceptibility or in fact are going to be impacted in other ways? That's just an empirical question. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so Dr. Tabri, just before we go, what are some of the best places on the internet for people to find a little bit more about your work? Well, um, I think that, you know, if you're just interested in these topics generally, uh, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy is a great resource. Um, there are over a hundred entries that talk about genetics in some way or another. Um, I have a couple uh, entries up there on it. It's a great resource, you know, whether you're interested in, you know, Enlightenment philosophy or Socrates' ideas on virtues or the Human Genome Project to see what philosophers uh, have to say about it. And every one of those entries then, you know, they point you to other literature that's out there. So uh, rather than making this a plug for me, I'll make it a plug for, you know, if this is a topic you're interested in and you're interested in it from a philosophical perspective, I think the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy is a good place to start. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I will be leaving links to that in the description box of this video. And Great. Dr. Tabri, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show. I think it was really a very informative conversation. So thank you again a lot for taking the time. I enjoyed the discussion, Ricardo. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. Uh, I've started this channel in February 2018 and so I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields and I would really like to ask you just to consider visiting my Patreon page and making a pledge there. Any amount, even one dollar, would already be a great help. Uh, and so otherwise, if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Per Elga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Jelina, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda and Brian Rivera. Thank you for all.